Auzu billahi mineşşeytanirracim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi rabbil alamin. Vessalatu vesselamu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ecmaîn. Allahumme allimna ma yanfa'una ve anfa'ana bima 'allamtana ve zidna ilmen nafi'a. Allahumme erinel hakka hakkan ve erzukna ittiba'a. وَأَرِنَا الْبَاطِلَ بَاطِلًا وَأَرْزُقْنَا اِجْتِنَابًا رَبِّ اِشْرَحْ لِي صَدْرِي وَيَسِّرْ لِي اَمْرِي وَحْلُلْ اُقَدَةً مِنْ لِسَانِي يَفْقَهُ قَوْلِي Esselamu Aleyküm ve Rahmetullahi ve Berekatuhu Welcome to the Reflections on the Risale-i Nur by Bediüzzaman Said Nursi Podcast Series This is Mustafa Tuna You can listen to the episodes of this series wherever you get your podcasts or now on YouTube too. Um, to find either the audio or the video version, you can go to the website www.reflections-rn.org. Let me repeat that, www.reflections-rn.org. And inshallah, for this particular episode, you um, can go to introduction and there you will find links to the audio and video versions. Uh, the videos are hosted on YouTube and the YouTube channel is Reflections RN and it would be great if you can subscribe to either the podcast or the YouTube uh, channels. So inshallah in this episode uh, we will try to finish our discussion of uh, Ustad Bedir Zaman Said Nursi's life and works. Uh, we have spent three weeks on going over his biography and reflecting upon it. And in this episode, inshallah, we will have some more, more general uh, reflections on, on his character, on his devotion, and on the work that he left with us. So, in the previous episode, we had mentioned that Ustad Nursi passed away on March 23rd, 1960, or the 27th night of Ramadan, uh, Laylatul Qadr. And... Shortly before he died, he had asked his students to take him to Urfa. And Urfa is a very, very blessed city. It has the, um, the spiritual stations of maqamat of several prophets and many saints. And perhaps most importantly, the station of, uh, spiritual station of Ibrahim alayhi salam. Maqam Ibrahim is in Urfa. It is narrated that he was born there. Um, so he asks his students to take him there shortly before, a few days before actually. Uh, he passes away and he passes away in Urfa and he was buried there uh, at a mosque that is uh, the shrine mosque uh, that is where uh, the Maqam Ibrahim is. But unfortunately, shortly after his death, there was a coup in Turkey and the military junta that followed uh, this coup again in 1960 <clears throat> they were afraid of the presence of Ustad Nursi's uh, body in Urfa in a known spot so they actually dug up the grave and took his blessed body and buried it at a at a location that we don't know and in, in an unknown location probably very likely in the mountains of Sparta and Bursa in uh, southwest uh, Turkey. 
And this is interesting because <clears throat> they say that the higher the station of a saint of God is, the more hidden that this uh, saint of God, this, this wali, uh, will be including uh, his or her uh, place of burial. Uh, an example that they give is the tomb of Imam uh, Shazili, uh, which is in a very distant location in Egypt. You have to really travel there. So Ustad Nursi's, uh, another aspect of this is his will actually was for his tomb not to be known. Uh, you know, he was buried at Muqam uh, Ibrahim in Urfa, but we know that his will was that his when he lived in Sparta, he had asked his students not to let his burial place to be known widely. <clears throat> uh, this was probably due to concerns about uh, the, um, the kinds of things that sometimes people do at the burial places of uh, awliya uh, that are not in line with the Sharia. Now, we should clarify, Ustad Nusi was not against grave visitations. We know that he did that himself. Uh, but he was also concerned that sometimes people did um, you know, unseemly things at burial places of the Evliya of, of God, the saints and or friends of God. Uh, and also, even during his lifetime, uh, especially the closer he got to uh, you know, his, his death, he didn't like to meet too many people. People came to him all the time because as those of uh, you who have been listening to these episodes will now by, know by now, uh, his works had spread all over the country. Uh, in writing, in handwriting, hand copied, uh, you know, copies, and later on in publication as well. So he was very well known Many people uh, had found guidance in his writings, uh, so they wanted to visit his grave. And you know, his his um, funeral was something. There were thousands of people, many of whom many of whom came from different parts of the country. Whoever could afford came. Uh, but during his lifetime, when you know such people came to him. Most of the time, he would not accept visitors. He would you know, have his students politely apologize to them and say, you know, he was sick, and you know, so this time he was sick. But perhaps more importantly, he did not want attention to be on his person. He wanted people's attention to be on the truths uh, as articulated in the works that he had authored which we now know as the Risale Inur collection, Epistles of Light collection, which were reflections of the truths that were revealed to the Prophet ﷺ in the Quran, since the Risale Inur was a, a, an exegesis, a commentary on the Quran. So he did not want people to think that blessings and effusions came from the person of Bedou Zaman Said Nursi, but rather he wanted them to think that the blessings and effusions are coming from the Quran, which is the reality. And he did not want people to attribute significance to his person. 
Now, of course, this is the position of a saint of God who has utmost sincerity, ikhlas, and utmost devotion to God, and who has realized the state of the evil commanding soul, right? Nasrallah and associates all that is good that appears on him with God's blessings and does not appropriate it. And that is the true position. That is the uh, fair, accurate uh, position that any believer should assume. But again, of course, we know that he had a tremendous station as indicated by the uh, concealment of his burial site uh, in the hands of a military junta who were mostly very opposed to religion. So they did not think that they were fulfilling Bedouzaman Said Nursi's will, right? But divine determination, God's divine determination has, or God has his ways in uh, fulfilling what is in his divine determination. Uh, he, he used them as his instruments to fulfill Bedou Zaman Said Nursi's will. So, Ustad Nursi's will for his tomb to remain hidden reflects his state of spiritual realization, Nasis Ma'arifa, in which he perceived and acknowledged all the good that appeared in his hands to be from God alone. As a result, he would either not accept praise at all, or if he feared breaking the heart of the person who praised him, he would accept it in the name of the Risale Inur in relation to its inspired derivation from the Quran. So this is something that we observe again and again in his life too, right? He did not like people uh, visiting him, uh, unless they visited him thinking that, look, this man is, has devoted his life to the service of the Qur'an and this is something that we all need to do. This is a respons responsibility for on the shoulders of all believers. I'm a believer. Let me go and be on his side. Let me help him. So if somebody came, truly came with this intention to help him on his service, in the way of the Qur'an, to the Qur'an, to the believers, to the legacy of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, for the sake of God's contentment, then he would accept that. And the few students that he allowed to stay with him in his last uh, years, we recognize, you know, because uh, they, they all passed away too, and we know the, 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 their life stories, their lives are also sealed, and we know where they stood. Right? They were also all full of representatives of ikhlas, sincerity in purpose in this world. So if somebody came with this intention, and there was a need for their help, assistance, right? He would accept them, uh, he would ask them to do things, but if somebody came thinking that, oh, look, there is a great saint of God here. Let me go visit him and kiss his hand and then I'll get his blessings. He did not accept them. People wrote eulogies about him during his lifetime. Like people who read his works and um, were inspired and found guidance uh, at, at those in these times of trial and tribulation. They would write eulogies about him. 
uh, he did not accept them he wanted them he wanted people not to do it uh, but you know sometimes there was you know such a person there's such a blessed person who would do this he could not say no and whenever that happened he would um, you know take that eulogy and edit it to take out his 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 name and refer all praise and admiration to the Risale Inur as an exegesis of the Quran, as a commentary of the Quran, not as his you know, personal work. So he had um, tremendous sincerity in purpose, ikhlas, and ostentation. Riyadh did not touch him. Right? He was, I mean, he he was such a person that ostentation would be very easy for him. Right? He had that sharp mind, um, photographic memory. Uh, he had spent his entire life in dedication to his cause. He had been of tremendous service to the Ummah. He had a lot to be proud of. But being proud of any of these would mean ostentation or could mean ostentation, i.e. doing all of that in order to show off to people, thinking of oneself in the presence of people while one should be thinking of himself or herself in, in God's presence. Right? So that, that fine line is very important because once one crosses that fine line in the direction of where people are, that is ostentation, that's doing things to show off to people. And it takes away the, the, the rewards, the spiritual rewards and the blessing in, from all the deeds that are being performed by a person. So you may do lots of things. You may, you, in a worldly sense, in this world, you may accomplish a lot. You may move the mountains. But what you acquire from that in God's sight, in a spiritual sense, in the sense of what you acquire with it in the hereafter, is a matter of your intentions, what you intend to acquire in doing that. You may, you know, you may lift a pen, but your intention is not lifting the pen. Your intention is what you want to acquire by lifting the pen. Right? So he wanted to acquire God's pleasure and God's pleasure alone. We see this in his repeated, repeated um, admonishments uh, directed at his own soul. So he was a um, paragon of, model of, ikhlas without any ostentation, without any ostentation. He said that he did not like himself or those who liked him for himself. He says this, he writes this and he sends this as a letter to all his students, like police passes on to everybody. I don't like myself. I don't like myself. That's easy to say because even that can be ostentation. But he also said, and I don't like those who like me for my own sake. He feared affectation and detested shows of respect to his person. As a result, the larger his following grew, 
the more humble he became and chose a life of seclusion. Now again, his life is sealed. The book is closed and we have the entire story. There are people out there that you'll find um, the more people gather around them, the more people they want to gather around them, the more they'll be out there. And you don't know whether they are after the fame, whether they are after the glitter that comes with it, or after um, a, a sincere concern for uh, being of benefit to people and earning God's pleasure. You don't know. But in the case of Bedouzama Said Nusi, there is no, no doubt, no dubiousness about this matter. Right? The more uh, people gather around him, the more humble he becomes. And he chooses a life of seclusion. He had a time in his life earlier on, as we talked, 1907 to 1917, and then after 19, uh, and then after uh, um, World War One, while he was in Istanbul, when he was a really active pe person, especially you know shortly after 1908 uh, coup, the, the Young Turk Revolution, he was all over the place. Right now, he was not doing this for ostentation either. Right? He, he, he was burning with this desire to fix things as the empire was collapsing. But he was still taking the means. And there comes a point when he recognizes that the, even the means of this world, which is okay, which is permissible to take. And in some time, some occasion, it is necessary to, to take. Right? But even those means mean nothing unless one finds the causer of all causes and builds his or her relationship with the causer of all causes. Right? That's what he focuses on later on. And that is the maqam al-sidq, right? the, the, the station of veracity, uh, at which point you see reality as reality is completely, completely uh, the... Uh, the veil of the unseen is lifted and you see the causer of all causes behind all causes and effects simultaneously. And you see it so, um, as so real, so vibrant that you, you have, I mean, in some cases, if, if, if this happens um, without, the, uh, without the intellect's assistance and, you know, to an extent that you may lose, uh, you may lose uh, control, right? Uh, you, you may be unable to even take the means. So this is not the case with him. He is still able to take the means. He is still aware of this world. He doesn't, uh, you know, fall into a, an ecstatic state where he is unable to see the means. No, he sees the means, but he realizes their uh, quiddity. Right? And then from there on, we see that he's going to withdraw even uh, the, the society, right? To a large extent, he will prefer seclusion. He would rarely accept visitors and often turn away even those who traveled from distant locations to see him. He would reject anyone who came to him expecting a blessing through him. Right? Repeatedly, again and again, he says, don't come to me. I have no blessing. I have no significance. Don't come to me. Read the Risale Inur. If you read the Risale Inur, that is, that, that is the effusion for you. That is what you will get the benefit. That is 
that is complete benefit for you because uh, the Risale Nur is uh, given of, of course after a long period of preparation but it is a, an inspired work right it is a gift of uh, the merciful right it's a gift of God the merciful God to the people of this age of trials and tribulations to be a cure to be a remedy for their festering wounds we have lots of festering wounds. So he will always direct attention to the Risale Inur. Now, a secret and, and a really beautiful thing in this is that Bedu Zaman Said Nursi died in 1960. The Risale Inur, the works he authored, are still here. And they are here. Um, with equal possibility and intensity to benefit. Anybody who reads these books will benefit from it, from them. And Bedou Zaman Said Nursi also gave a uh, you know, umbrella ijaza certification, authorization to read these books and to benefit from them. Whoever takes the books with the intention to benefit from them and reads with patience and perseverance and repeatedly with, with a sincere intention to understand, have the permission, have the authorization to read those books and to benefit from them. So he would reject anyone who came to him expecting a blessing through him. He would tell them that they should read the Risale Inur instead. But he would accept those who came to him to share his burden in serving the Quran and the religion by spreading the Risale Inur. And that also continues today. He will accept and the Risale Nur will accept. Anyone who comes sincerely with the intention to serve the Quran and the religion, to be of benefit to the people, to help them preserve their faith, and to help oneself preserve his or her own faith, right? the Risale Nur will accept it. Ustad Bedu Zaman Said Nursi will accept them, inshallah. Now, Ustad Nursi was extremely modest, humble, no ostentation, full of pure, sincere uh, intentions, uh, preferred a life of seclusion, and so on and so forth. Right? But, but we don't want excesses in either way as members of the Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He wanted Ummah and Wasatiyah, right? A moderate, a moderate Ummah. And moderation is always going to be found between two extremes. On the other extreme of this, one could find himself in a position where one could turn completely inside, become an introvert, not talk to people at all. And as a result, not be of any benefit to anybody including perhaps himself or herself. So that's not what Bedou Zaman Said Nursi is. He, he, he was a firebrand. He was a daring individual. In proclaiming the truth and preserving the dignity of the knowledge he carried, he was daring and fearless. And we have dozens, if not hundreds of examples of this recorded in his biography and his, in history. 
Um, you know, one example is in 1909, uh, shortly after the Young Turk Revolution, uh, there was a rebellion which is which was then presented by the Young Turks as a counter-revolution and so on and so forth. Lots of people were interned. Uh, Bediüzzaman Said Nursi, following uh, his lifetime uh, principle of no infighting among believers, uh, you know, rebellion is not the solution to any problem. Uh, he, he tries to calm down some of the military units that had rebelled and so on and so forth. He was you know, all over the place in Istanbul, but at the end of the day, uh, he is suspect because of his religiosity, because of his ethnicity and so on and so forth. So they put him on trial. They put him on trial, and this the, the court that was set up was a you know um, emergency court that was uh, sentencing people to execution left and right. It was in Istanbul. If you if anybody goes to Istanbul now, Istanbul University, you know, right behind the gates of Istanbul University, there are a few buildings. So it, the court was set up here, and they had set up gallows right outside the court. People were hanging, executed people, hanging on those uh, you know, scaffolds. So they put him on trial and they ask him, so you want Sharia and so on and so forth. What does he say? He says, um, if I had a thousand heads, right, I would wish that each and every one of those thousands heads would each be taken away. Like I would be executed a thousand times for the sake of one issue of the Sharia. Yes, I want Sharia. And so the accusation is that you want Sharia. And he says, yes, I want Sharia. Right? But not like those who are rebelling. And then he you know, goes in and talk, talks. And in the end, uh, they can't withstand his oratory power and they uh, absolve him. They let him go. And as he is leaving the court, right? As he is leaving the court, he yells, um, long live hell for oppressors. So this is, he's, he's talking to the people who put him on trial. Long live hell for oppressors. Right? No fear. No fear in preserving the dignity of the knowledge he carried. No fear in uh, preserving the dignity of the Sharia protecting the religion. Right? When asked to stand up before the Tsar's uncle during his imprisonment in Russia, this is another occasion. Uh, he refused on the grounds that this would not become the dignity of his scholarship. Instead, he accepted to be put in front of the execution squad. The Tsar's uncle pardoned him in the last minute upon recognizing the sincerity in his thought, his unhesitant preparedness to die in the way of preserving the dignity of his knowledge. So, this happens uh, shortly after he was taken as prisoner of war uh, in World War One. As we mentioned, he uh, commanded a, uh, a, a regiment of voluntary soldiers during the war and protected the city of Wan in, in one of the, uh, the, the battles he was involved in. And his leg broke, he was taken as a prisoner of war, he was being taken to the uh, northern city of Kostroma. And on the way, at some point, when they are stationed somewhere, uh, Tsar Nicholas II's uncle, who was a commander in the army, comes and he's inspecting 
uh, the, the prisoners of war, the you know, prison conditions, and you know, so on and so forth. And they say the, 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 the Tsar's uncle is co uh, coming as he comes, and, you know, stand up. Everybody is standing up. Uh, you know, after all, this is a you know, statement of the country that you are in, and you know, so it's okay to, to show some respect to this person. But Yuzaman Said Nursi does not even move his finger, like he's not moving. He sits there, the Tsar passes and recognizes that this man did not stand up. Uh, he wants to make sure that this is uh, not an oversight, perhaps he didn't see him. So he goes and comes back and passes in front of him again and Bediuzzaman Said Nursi does not stand up again. So he gets upset, he asks like, what's going on? Are you disrespecting me? Because if you are disrespecting me in my person, you are disrespecting the Tsar, you are disrespecting the, uh, the, the state. What's going on? Right? And he says, no, I'm not disrespecting you, but, but I am a believing scholar. I have this knowledge in my chest that I'm preserving. And the dignity of that knowledge is more than the dignity, whatever dignity you may be presenting. You are a, you are a statesman, but at the end of the day, you are a disbelieving statesman. So I'm not going to get up for you. I'm going to preserve the dignity of the knowledge that I'm carrying in my chest. So the uncle does not believe this. They set up a quick uh, court there. Basically, you know, the quick court is that you know the the uncle is overseeing a uh, formality and they sentenced him to execution for insulting the you know, Tsar's person, the state of the Russian Empire and so on and so forth. They um, sentenced him to execution. He says, okay. They ask him his last bill. He says, let me pray to Rekaz or prayer. They say, okay. <clears throat> he takes his ablutions, prays to Rekaz uh, and then is walking back to, to be executed. And in the meanwhile, they had uh, brought the execution squad. Later on, he says that he did not know that the execution squad was there, but he knew that he was going to be executed, right? Uh, but he does not, he does not act, he does not drag his feet. He takes his wudu, he prays properly and comes back very confident. And the uncle who had been observing what's going on then says, Okay, I'm now convinced because a person who is uh, preparing for his execution usually drags his feet, takes it easy, you know, makes sure that he can spend more time so that he can uh, be put on in front of the execution squad later. But Stavnursi has no sign of fear and no sign of, you know, trying to delay things and so on and so forth. He says, I am now convinced that you are doing what you are doing. Uh, sincerely because of what you are saying and he actually asks for forgiveness from Bedouzaman Said Nursi. Right? So his life is full of such um, you know, what we may think of as uh, like legendary stories but they are real. These are narrated by people who witnessed it. Bedouzaman Said Nursi does not narrate these himself. Right? Many of them have happened in front of hundreds of people. The court was a, uh, a court where there, were, there was audience who were you know, watching what's going on. The several uh, uh, you know, soldiers are there, the uh, military judges are there. Uh, the other incident, there are Russian soldiers, there are 
several uh, other Ottoman prisoners of war, one of uh, in which eventually narrates this story. So his life is full of stories like this. Um, he did not fear death. The only occasion where we can say he feared death is when he was in Van. Uh, this is going to be after he he was in Ankara after World War One. He was in Ankara and then he goes to Van, and <clears throat> he had a madrasa um, on a uh, on on the ruins of a former like fortress uh, on, on a small mountain. Uh, it was a very steep place. So while climbing there, he falls. He falls from a cliff. So there were witnesses there and uh, there are a couple of different narrations about what happened uh, or what he said as he was falling, but he says something indicating that he was concerned about not being able to fulfill his mission. Right? So one narration which is more likely is that he, as he is falling, he, he, he screams, Dawam, right? And he probably screamed in Kurdish, but anyway, my cause, right? My mission, my cause. And miraculously, he actually you know, falls from that cliff, but he doesn't fall down. He uh, swings in the air and falls to a you know, lower and safer location, and he was safe without any uh, danger, right? So... Even when he fears something as he's facing potential death, what he's concerned about is fulfilling his mission. What was that mission? As we talked before, when he was young, early on in his, in his life, he hears that uh, the, 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 uh, he hears that the British Prime Minister Gladstone had taken the Quran in his hand and said, as long as we don't take this from the Muslims, we won't be able to dominate them. So we first need to cut the relationship with the Quran, right? Uh, we first need to um, lower it in their eyes. And Badr Zaman Sayyid Nursi takes a vow saying, I will prove to the world that the Quran is um, undefeatable, indefeatable. Its light cannot be taken away from the people. He wants to prove the miraculousness of the Quran and the truth of its message. And that salvation, true salvation in this world and in the hereafter is only and only by following the message of the Quran. This is what he wanted to, 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 to prove. And, and if he had fear, it was the fear of not being able to fulfill this message. Otherwise, he was fearless. He was fearless in the face of worldly, worldly um, threats and dangers, mashallah. So he was humble and modest, but he, he, he was a lion in preserving the dignity of the religion and the knowledge that he carried in his chest. So we talked about Ustad Nursi's uh, the, the devo devotion, ikhlas, uh, courage, dignity, um, but mostly in the context of people, right? In the context of uh, society, how he was not touched by ostentation, how he worked among the people, how he avoided people, 
how he preserved his dignity among the people, and so on and so forth. But a really important aspect of his example, as narrated by the people who witnessed his life, is how that devotion was um, solely for God, right? All his life, Ustad Nursi aspired to be for God and God alone. Right? Everything else, there are other things in his life. <clears throat> he lives a relatively long life of action and production. And there are other things happening in his life, but they're all revolving around, around this sincere devotion to God. God is at the center at all times. God is at the center. And what is the opposite of that? What can take us away from God? The world, right? I mean, it is our lower soul, instinctive soul that attaches to the world. And, and sometimes may God protect even the heart may be attached to the world. Um, but the object of what is luring us, the object of attraction, that is the world, right? And again and again in his uh, writings, we can see this. He will warn himself against uh, being attached to the world. So as a principle, he abstained from all that that could attract or tie him, attach him to the world, hurt the sincerity of his intentions, or diminish the purity of his exertion in the service of the Quran. Right? So he did not want to be attracted or attached to the world. He did not want to lose his sincerity, ikhlas, and he did not want to lose the purity of his exertion in the service of He wanted his exertion, his jihad, his struggle to be solely, solely in the service of the Quran for God's sake. Right? On, on the way of God. He was the recipient of many divine gifts and special blessings that broke the norm and confirmed the truth of his cause. Right? There are lots of karama that are being narrated about him. Um, <clears throat> you know, one example, right? Uh, at some point when he was in his youth, when he was roaming around the cities and towns of Southeast Anatolia, at some point he goes to a town and because he was so famous, it usually attracted the, uh, the, the um, jealousy, envy, and rivalry of some other scholars. And this could sometimes create some problems. And because those scholars were already established in the town, the governor of the place would decide that, you know, let's get rid of this young man. He's uh, causing too much trouble. So in one of those occasions, he was actually being exiled from one city to another. And there were two soldiers that were, uh, you know, taking him. And he's, he's, he was tied to the, uh, to the horse. His uh, you know, hands were tied and his legs were tied from under the belly of the horse. Uh, there comes the prayer time. And uh, all his life, Edizaman Said Nursi prayed his prayers at the very beginning of the prayer time. Uh, he would say that uh, the, 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 he, he, he writes about, he talks about this um, Jamaat Uzma, the, the, the tremendous congregation 
uh, that takes place with the involvement of each and every believer who prays at the beginning of the time, starting in circles from around the Kaaba and extending all the way to the furthest point. So every prayer, say the Zuhr midday uh, noon prayer today, right? Uh, there are those who, who pray the time when time comes uh, right next to Kaaba in Mecca. And there are those who pray, say, you know, open the circle a little bit, but when the time comes at the beginning of the time. So each congregation congregates within 24. It's going to be 24, right? However many hours it is. Uh, within 24 hours as the uh, the, the earth uh, completes its uh, revol revolution and he called that the great and uh, the, the tremendous congregation he wanted to be uh, in that congregation so he tried to pray his prayers at the beginning of the time all the time you know one time uh, this is you know in the 1950s when he was allowed to have a car and he had students who were uh, you know, helping him, <clears throat> they were traveling to a town uh, in the winter and there was lots of snow uh, and they were close to this town. But the time, the prayer time comes, he asks his students like, stop the car, I want to pray. It's, it's snowing outside, it's like cold and ice and, you know, all that stuff. They say, how about we wait for you know 15 minutes the time like they see the town in the distance and if you drive for like 15 more minutes we are going to be in the town and then we can pray in a uh, masjid he says no i want i don't want to miss the tremendous congregation um so again when he was being exiled from that uh you know from one town to another in his youth and he's tied handcuffed and tied from his legs on this uh, horse he asked the soldiers prayer time came let you know untie me so that I can pray. The, the two soldiers they look at each other and they are like, "What if he runs away?" And he was strong. So what if he runs away? He, like if we untie him, he's going to escape, and then we will be in trouble. They say, "No, we cannot untie you. Like do whatever we will do on the on the horse." Uh, he says, "Okay." Uh, and then the, they were uh, they were stopping somewhere. He just gets off the car. Uh, I mean, he just gets off the horse. Uh, he was untied. The handcuff was gone. The uh, the, the rope that, that had tied his uh, legs just opened up. He gets off the horse and the soldiers are looking wide-eyed. What's going on here? Right? He gets off the horse, takes his evolution, prays, gets on the horse again and tells them, okay, tie me again. And they both recognize what they are witnessing and they say, no, <laughs> we are not tying you again. It's okay. Uh, we are in your service now. And he says, okay, yeah, you, you know, fulfill what uh, you were commanded to do. So they don't tie him, but they still take him to his place of exile. Mashallah. So he was given lots of divine gifts. Uh, he was given barakah, right? He lived such a life of frugality. Uh, after his exile, especially in 1926, until he, his death in 1960, he ate so little, so little, uh, that the a portion of the money that he had earned while working at the Darul Hakimat al Islamiyah, the House of the Wisdom of Islam, right uh, after World War One, uh, like two, three years or something like that, uh, the, the salary he received. Uh, in return for his work there, 
he spent much of it on um, publishing uh, treatises. He, he would write um, brief treatises, short treatises at the time that are very powerful and important and that later became part of his Mathnavi uh, al-Arabi al-Nuri, one of the books now in the Risale Nur collection, and he would spend the money to publish them, but there still was some money left. He relied on that money until, um, you know, turn of 1950s or so, at which point some money started to come from the publication of his, his, his works. And he would take that money too and spend the, the bare minimum on his own um, uh, provision and spend the rest again to you know, publish the Risale Inur. He lived a life of frugality, but we are talking about around 25 years, right? A small portion of the salary that he had received when he worked for two or three years sufficed him for about 25 years. When he was being exiled, there were you know, tribal chiefs and etc. who were also being exiled with him. And because this is you know, such a great scholar, they wanted to help him. They would tell him like, how about we give you some money? How about we do this for you? How about we do that for you? And he would reject all of that. And he would say, I am living with the barakat, the, the, uh, the blessings of uh, frugality. You worry about yourselves. And several of these people, because they were you know, tribal chiefs and they have to be generous, they were like spending left and right. Uh, within a couple of years, many of them went back bankrupt. And they, 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 they found themselves in a situation when they had to ask for money and you know, seek provision. The small amount of uh, resources that he had accumulated in that short period sufficed him for upwards of 25 years, right? So, yes, this is, this can be explained, uh, you know, within the, the, um, within the realm of causes and effects in a worldly sense, but if you think of it, how did he preserve right, that, um, that frugality for 25 years? And, and plus there are lots of examples of, you know, baraka beyond the, what you can explain the uh, realm of causes and effects. But the first karama, Right, the first miraculous situation here is that his ability to preserve that frugality for 25 years. His perseverance, right? Uh, his perseverance in the face of troubles and difficulties, his patience and perseverance, and also, inshallah, you'll talk, his perseverance in the face of uh, fulfilling obligations and doing more spending his nights praying and standing in prayer and supplicating and reciting the Quran and right? all of this, the, these are miraculous. His perseverance in preserving a life of dignity and service, all of these are bordering miracles, borderline miraculous. So, he was the recipient of many gifts and special blessings that broke the norm and confirmed the truth of his cause, but he neither asked for nor expected them. Right? 
And he, he admonishes himself repeatedly, don't ask for it, don't expect it. And I'm not talking about charity from people. He never accepted charity from people. Uh, he never accepted zakat. He never accepted charity. He never, well, very rarely he would accept gifts in order not to break the heart of the person who is giving the gift. And when he accepted, he would usually give something, uh, something back, right? But not even from God, he would not even you know, openly ask from God for these blessings and gifts and so on and so forth because he wanted his entire existence about serving. He wanted to be concerned about his service alone. So it's up to me that I serve. It's up to God whether he gives or not. And I will continue to serve whether he gives or not. I do my part. And I don't, I, I, I don't get involved in his part, right? He neither asked for nor expected them, hoping to receive his reward in the hereafter alone. And that's the other thing. And he, he uh, teaches this to his students too. Don't take charity, but more importantly, don't be after spiritual pleasures, don't be after miracles, the kinds of things that, uh, you know, we hear in uh, the Manaqib of Awliya, the stories of the saints of God. Uh, don't, don't seek the pleasures and gifts and delights and beautiful things, you know, that come with being for God alone. If it comes, you say, Alhamdulillah, this is from my, 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 my Lord's, you know, gift to me. Um, and it increases your thankfulness to God. If it doesn't come, you don't look for it, you don't expect it. And also if it comes, you try to question your intentions too. Am I doing what I am doing in order to get more of this pleasure? Can this be something that's a tribulation for me? Meaning that, can it be something that with which God is testing me. God is testing my devotion to Him, my sincerity, right? And also, am I receiving my reward for what I'm doing here in this world and therefore using it up and finishing it up and not leaving nothing for the hereafter? Right, the story that he tells about this is that there was this um, couple, blessed couple, wife and husband, old age. And they found themselves in a difficult situation. Uh, they they, they, they uh, fell into poverty. And the, the woman was like, you know, I wish we had more. So together they supplicate to God. And you know, this is the story. God sends to them a gold brick. And they, they find it in their house, a gold brick. And they are inspired that this is a gold brick from a palace that they own in paradise. So the one of the bricks of the palace that they owned in the paradise was taken from the walls of their palace in paradise and sent to them to use in this world. They're looking at the gold brick and, you know, mashallah, this can suffice for them the rest of their lives and perhaps, you know, generations uh, after, after them. But then the woman says, you know what? Let's 
pray to God that he takes us back because I don't want my palace in paradise to be missing a brick. Right? This is the issue. This, 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 this is the position that one has to be with regard to even spiritual rewards and punishments that may be received in this world. And that was his position. Hoping to receive his reward in the hereafter alone, from God alone, merely, merely, right? Uh, for, 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 you know, turning to God and seeking, wishing for his countenance, which is, which is way better than even paradise. He lived in poverty, wore old and patched clothing. And, you know, you, we can see this uh, in Sparta, the house that he stayed with his students in the last years of his life is now turned into a museum. And this uh, robe with, you know, hundreds of patches on it is there. That's what he wore. That's that, and that's that's the level of his frugality too, right? He had this one robe that would you know protect him from uh, cold. Uh, it's a relatively thick robe, and he wore it his entire life after he bought. I don't know when he bought it, but you know his entire life in exile, and it is full of patches, dozens of patches, right? Now this is a person of such tremendous uh, standing in society. Uh, especially, say, in the 1950s, when there are hundreds of thousands of students who are reading his works. But does he care? He is going to walk around with that, that robe that has like hundreds of patches on it. He ate little to survive, and that's legendary, like people who were with him also tell. Like they say, we couldn't survive on the amount that he ate. But he did not accept even gifts, let alone charity. Now, as we said before, uh, while this cannot be officially documented, there are very strong indications that he was uh, a Sayyid. He was a descendant of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Of course, descendants of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's impermissible for them to receive uh, charity or uh, zakat, obligatory alms, right? So he did not take, take, take charity and obligatory alms all his life. Even when he was a young student at the madrasas, he would not receive it. He, but he would not also accept gifts. He did not even accept gifts. Like with very few uh, exceptions, he did not even accept gifts all his life. God alone. God alone. Right? Nothing of this world. Also, he slept little and spent most of his nights in a state of worship and supplication. And this is also legendary. People would uh, hear him crying and praying, uh, reciting Quran. Uh, when he was first exiled to uh, the village of Barla in Sparta, uh, they, they, they put him, um, they, they asked the imam of the uh, town to host him for a while until he, they, they found a uh, you know, private uh, place for Buddhism on Said Nursi. So the Imam was hosting him and they gave him a room. And at night, at night, this Imam and his wife feel that the house is shaking. They wake up like, what's going on? The house is shaking. And then they get up and they look and they see light, right, coming through the cracks of the door uh, of his room. And it's not candlelight, it is 
light, light. Um, and they say, and the, and the Imam says to his wife, this is God's gift to us. We should try to really please this, this man. This, this man is special, right? Um, later, when he was given a um, small house in that village, uh, there, there was a beautiful and huge uh, plane tree in front of the house. He asked a carpenter to build a, a little scaffold on top of the tree. He would climb that uh, scaffold and, and pray that he would, he would spend his nights there. People say they, they didn't know, they, they couldn't know, they couldn't figure out when he slept. Um, he probably slept no more than two hours during the period uh, until, until he was very old, until he was very old. Uh, and his routine was he would, you know, um, not allow anybody near him after Maghrib. That was a time for his devotions. And there, there are some narrations that suggest that he also taught uh, jinns at the time. But anyway, he would not allow anybody to, uh, during that period into his room and after Isha he would uh, sleep a little and then wake up and then he would do his awrad. Uh, we mentioned that he would go through the awrad of all 12 uh, major Sufi orders uh, once every two weeks and then he had a huge list of uh, the descendants of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Sadat, the, the, the Sayyids of this Ummah. Um, he would read their names and send blessings and you know, pray for them and so on and so forth. That was his nights. That was his nights. MashaAllah. Okay, uh, we already mentioned this before, his compassion. That was probably the character trait that guided his entire service life and service. He was extremely compassionate and he says that he learned this from his mother. It was his mother who instilled this uh, character trait in him in his youth. He would cry upon the sight of falling leaves. Um, he would forbid his students from killing mosquitoes. When he was put in prison, uh, he, he was given a little bread and a meager provision. And he would share it with mice. How do we know? Because in one occasion, they uh, wanted to poison, poison him in uh, prison and they gave him food that was poisoned. And he puts it in front of the mouse the mouse eats it and the mouse dies. So that's how he knew that well, it was poison. But he, he doesn't put it in front of the mouse because it was poison. He, he was feeding the mouse. Right? And he does this in other occasions too. He leaves some bread somewhere in the house for the mouse to come and he says, you know, this is their provision, we will give this to them and then they won't bother us. Uh, and, and that turns out to be the case, they don't bother them. It was this compassion that underlined his determination to preserve believers' faith at a time when state policies and changing ways of life pushed them away from religion and into hellfire. And this is not only about the believers in Turkey in the 1930s and 40s. This is about the age that we are living in. It is the calamity of this age, the secular age, that irreligiosity became not only possible but more but also easier and more fashionable and in some cases preferable in society right and that renders being a believer at this age extremely difficult and not being a believer not having faith results in going to hell 
And that is a state to have compassion about, to compassion for. We uh, all have some level of compassion for the troubles and tribulations and pains that we see people going through in this world. But what about the hereafter? Having the level of compassion that he had for, for people and especially disbelievers or believers who may be sinning, right? That requires a really certain understanding of what is to come in the hereafter and what is expecting these people. And he had that certainty about what was expecting disbelievers in the hereafter. And because he had the certainty, he had enormous compassion for them. Because after all, compassion is to see people or no, not people, to, to, to see things in dire need, in trouble, in pain, and be moved with that. So he was moved with that. It was his compassion that underlined his determination to preserve believers' faith. And he, 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 that determination characterizes his entire life. Right? At a time when state policy is changing ways of life, pushed believers away from religion and into hellfire. So he dedicates his entire life to saving people from hellfire with determination and perseverance because of his compassion. He proclaimed that one who attains true faith can defy the entire creation. And he defied the dictatorial powers of a state that adamantly pursued the eradication of religion. Right? He lived for a while, not the entire, you know, not the entire period, but for a while in the Turkish Republic, there was a time when the state was determined to eradicate religion the way they did in the Soviet Union or other communist countries. Right? There are and subtleties involved in this. The Turkish state was not able to do it. Uh, they were not able to access the villages the way that you know some of the Soviet countries did by destroying the villages and so on and so forth. There are there are things to be said about this, but that's not about Medusa Mansaidnuti. That's about history per se. Whether they were able to or not, the state was dedicated to do to do this, and they were mobilizing all the force that they had to this to this end. And this is one old man exiled to a village, a mountain village that's beyond the mountain and a lake and more mountain, right? But, but one who attains true faith can defy the entire creation, defy the cosmos, all powers, whatever power that may be in the creation, one who attains true faith can define them all because well, everything in the creation is creation. They are created. And one who has true faith has God on his side, has the creator on his, on, on, on his or her side. So he defies all the forces of the state. And we, we should also say the secular age. He defies the forces of the secular age to preserve people, religion and religiosity. He believed that ends did not justify the means, since God creates both the means and the ends, and what behooves, behooves his slave is to serve him within, within the bounds he permits. This is very important. This is very important. Ends do not justify the means, because as a believer, or as a created being, 
all we have in our hands, I mean, in our disposal, and that's even in, that even is a metaphorical sense, before us, all we have before us <clears throat> are the means. We have no guarantee that the means that we take will lead to the ends. We see patterns, we observe patterns in this world in which it looks like the means that we take will lead to the ends we, we pursue. <clears throat> but in reality, it is God that creates the ends, not the means. Therefore, relying on the means to achieve the ends, may God forbid, but even may even imply a hidden polytheism. <clears throat> may imply um, the attribution of some sort of divinity to the means, to the causes, right? So, for a true believer, ends cannot justify the means. The standard, the guideline for the believer is whether the means that we are taking uh, are in accordance with what God has commanded us to do, or, or, or uh, whether they are avoiding what God has forbidding, uh, forbidden us from doing, right? So what behooves the slaves of God is to serve him within the bounds he permits. So he will not, Benuzaman Said Nursi will not, will not uh, do anything that may imply uh, a line of thinking uh, based on an understanding that would imply that ends justify the means. And he says this explicitly, explicitly too, right? He says that um, taking an illicit, taking the illicit means in order to achieve a noble purpose will result in the opposite of that noble purpose. Especially if you're a believer. Right? If you're a disbeliever, then you know, God may be misguiding you further on your path. But if you are a believer and God loves you and does not want you to fall completely out of his, um, his mercy, right? God will check you on the way. If you are taking illicit means, he will check you, he will stop you. You won't be able to achieve what you are intending to achieve. And more often than not, you you will you will find yourself in a situation that's situation that's the opposite of what you want to achieve. Once again, this is very important because Bedir Zaman Said Nursi was a giant of this tradition, the, the, the tradition of Islam, and his works are very insightful and inspiring, and they inspire lots of people out there. But not all of them. Um, follow his teaching uh, to to a point, and following the, the main guidelines he uh, he articulated, he laid out. And when you don't follow those main guidelines that he laid out, you may stray away. You may be you may end up um, taking advantage of. The insight and inspiration that he articulated in his works. Uh, you may even be luring people with the attraction, the beauty, the, the light, the effusion that's in those works. 
but you will not be following on the steps of Bedizaman Said Nursi. So one has to be very careful. One has to be very careful. This is not a simple matter. Bedizaman Said Nursi was a giant of this tradition, and those who um, read his works benefit from his works. And if you truly benefit from his works, you will not be able to help but sharing them with other people. You will not be able to, um, you know, throw your legs one one leg on top of the other and sit back and just wait and watch things no you will it, it will inspire you to move it will inspire you to into into action you will not be able to not serve you will want to serve uh in 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 the way of in the way of god uh to to save people's faiths and so on and so forth but if you are truly inspired by Vedusama Said Nursi's uh, works by the Risale Inur collection uh, which is a commentary on the Qur'an. Therefore, if you are truly inspired by the Qur'an and if you are truly on the path of the uh, Qur'an and the Sunnah, you will follow those guidelines to a point and you will not... Uh, you, you, you will not do things that... that on the face of it appear to be leading to certain ends, but in reality fall beyond the boundaries of the sharia beyond the boundaries of um, ethical behavior and therefore um, therefore contradicting the teachings that great teacher of the ummah has left behind so he did not believe that ends justify the means and thus he relied on God with absolute certainty at all times. He remained steadfast on his course, expected and asked for success from God alone and God blessed us with the Risale Inur through him. God blessed us with the Risale Inur through him. That was the fruit that he left behind as the fruit of his blessed life. And once again, that fruit is still with us and relying on his station with God, uh, relying on the Risale Nur being a direct inspiration of the Quran, but Uzama Said Nursi gave blank permission to all those who approached the Risale Nur with sincerity and read it with uh, perseverance, try to understand, and he gave permission to all those who do this to go ahead and read the Risale Inur. And inshallah, uh, in our following episodes, we will talk about what the Risale Inur is, what is in it, how we should be reading it, how, can we, uh, how we can benefit from it, uh, inshallah. And then we will conclude this, uh, these, these sessions of the podcast and we will move on to uh, where we left with the uh, the, the words uh, one, one of his most important works in the Risale Inur collection so this was Bedir Zaman Said Nursi or this, was, this is what I was able to understand from Bedir Zaman Said Nursi's life may God uh, may God have mercy on his soul may God elevate his station and may God um, benefit us from his intercession in the hereafter may god may god benefit us uh, with the fruits of his 
uh, his blessed life, the Risale in our collection. Uh, may God help us save our faith uh, and be steadfast, be, be steadfast, steadfast on uh, the path of service, service uh, to religion, to the Quran, and to uh, the believers, to faith. May God help us preserve our faith with the inspiration that he received uh, from the Quran. Uh, may God have once again mercy on his soul. Uh, let's read uh, our Fatiha for his soul uh, and for all those who have been of service to the humanity uh, to preserve their faith and to bring them closer to God, starting with the Prophet wasallam, our Master Muhammad wasallam, and all other prophets and all other saints of God. May God have mercy on their souls. May God May God join us to them in the hereafter. Subhanaka la ilma lana illa ma'allamtana innaka anta al-alimul hakim. Wa akhirat da'wahu man alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Al-Fatiha salawana.